Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. As we stand, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we particularly pray tonight that you would soften our hearts, soften our hearts that we may hear Jesus, that we may see him more clearly, that we may know him more closely, and we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, please do sit down, and uh, as you're sitting down, if you could be turning back in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, that would be very helpful. Uh, So Luke chapter 18. Uh, from verse 9, that's page 1052 in the Church Bibles. Now these days it's uh, often seen as a good thing to do something for yourself that was once done by someone else. It's seen as a good thing because it can save time and money. Uh, for example, in a supermarket, in some, instead of somebody else scanning your shopping... You can do it yourself. There are self-service checkouts. Seems like a good idea. Until you do it, that is. (laughs) I think my own experience of these things has not been good. It always seems to take far longer. You know, nothing works. Something goes wrong somewhere. I'm constantly having to to ask a staff member to come and help me. And there's this annoying electronic voice telling me there's, you know, an unwanted item in the bagging area or something like that. And at the end of it all, I just want to smash the machine into small pieces. So it doesn't often go well. Unless it might be a good idea. In some other areas, it seems to work a bit better. Self-assessment of taxes. Seems like a good idea. Saves the inland revenue millions of dollars, millions of pounds every year. So in the same spirit of that, I've got a suggestion this evening. Why not have the same principle, that same principle of of self-service, self-assessment when it comes to our criminal justice system? So we get, this is how it works. We get rid of all the lawyers, all of the judges, get rid of the police force. We just have a single website where people can report and confess their crimes. So this is how it works. You commit a crime, you go online, uh, you fill in the details... Your, your personal details, the details of the crime, you say what kind of punishment you think you should get, and uh, job done. 
Apparently, the criminal justice system in this country costs billions and billions of pounds every year. Think of all the savings we could make. It'd be fantastic. Somehow, though, I think the idea is not likely to catch on. And I'd, you know, I'd admit that it could be open to some abuse. But what we're going to hear tonight is that even as we scoff at that idea, Jesus is going to expose that we take pretty much the same approach, that same approach, to God's justice. And uh, the justice that, God, that Jesus has in mind here is the justice of God when, when he, Jesus, the Son of Man, is revealed and comes in glory in the future. That's the, the moment of justice, the day of justice that Jesus has been talking about all the way uh, since chapter 17 of Luke's Gospel. Um, that's what he mentioned in the, in, in the verse just before the, one, the, ch- the passage we're going to look at tonight. Verse 8 talking about when the Son of Man comes. That's what he's talking about here too. The future justice of God. When he says in verse 14 that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who are humbled will be exalted, he means humbled and exalted on that day. On the day the Son of Man will be revealed. The day of judgment. But in the parable that Jesus tells here, there's a man who's taking a distinctly self-assessment, self-judgment, self-sentencing approach to that day. That's why Jesus is telling the parable. Luke helpfully reminds us that to some who were confident in their own righteousness, verse 9, and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Now, we might be tempted tonight, I think, to look down on the Pharisee in this story and say, well, you know, I'd never be like him, of course. But, you know, we better be sure. We had better be sure because what Jesus says here is that the consequences of being like that Pharisee are not at all good. So this is the question facing us tonight. How should we approach the coming judgments? How can we do that with faith? How How should we be praying to God now in the light of that day? Last week, Jesus was encouraging us to pray for the day to come, to come sooner. But are we ready for it? How should we pray about ourselves now in the light of that day? This is the question that Jesus is tackling this time. And we're going to look at what Jesus says in in two parts. First, first of all, don't be like the Pharisee. Don't be like him, justifying yourself and condemning others. And then the counterpart to that, do be like the tax collector, be like the tax collector, be like him, surrendering yourself yourself to God's mercy. Okay, then let's take the first character in this parable. I know there's very much to say. Jesus is basically saying something very simple. As you face that day, as you face that day of future judgment, Don't be like the Pharisee. Don't be like the Pharisee justifying yourself and condemning others. Don't be like the Pharisee dismissing the need for God's mercy and judging yourself to be fit to be his worthy partner forever. Don't exalt yourself, he says. Don't condemn others. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself or stood by himself and prayed. And this is what he prayed. Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, 
evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So the Pharisee stands alone. In fact, that's what the name Pharisee means, a a separated one. Someone who separates themselves from the wicked. The Pharisees were part of a, it was a sort of informal lay movement of Jewish people with a shared focus on the Jewish law, uh, who set out or set themselves out to be those who are exceptionally zealous in law keeping. You can see that here in verse 12. Uh, the law, the, the Old Testament law, required fasting only once a year and asked people to give a, a, a tenth of only certain kinds of things. But this Pharisee is going way beyond that. He's fasting twice a week and he's giving a tenth of everything he got. Now, why is he doing that? Well, he's doing that so that he can be confident in his righteousness. So that when he faces God on that day of judgment, he can, he can point to the law and say, look, this is what the law says. And then he can point to, his, point to himself and all the works of law that he has done. And he can be confident, he thinks, of a favorable outcome, a fast track to blessing. So that even now as he prays, he can think of himself as, as more than ready for that day. Appealing to the law, he can, this is the terminology, justify himself. Declare himself righteous, more than ready for that day. And then he can think of himself as, as different, separate from all these other wicked people like those in verse 11. The robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers, even the tax collectors. People he thinks are bound to be judged harshly on that day. Now put it like that, it it almost sounds reasonable, doesn't it? And it sounds reasonable because this, if we're honest, is the way many of us and many people more generally approach life and, and like to think about themselves. This is the way many people think about justice, especially, I might say, middle class people. It's not just a religious thing. It's one of the big things I want to emphasize tonight. What the Pharisee does here is not just a religious thing. You see, whether we're religious or not, we we all tend to do this. You know, we take ethical standards that matter to us, and then we make sure that we're seen and heard to more or less keep them. We might even focus on one or two areas, uh, like the Pharisee does here, that would show us in an especially good light. And then what? Then we can feel quite good about ourselves, especially, those, especially relative to those who fail to keep those standards we've chosen. At least implicit, we can start to look down on them. It's an attitude deeply ingrained in our culture. Newspaper columnists and media commentators are full of it. The internet is full of it. Pretty much every casual conversation you've ever had is full of it. The mindset of the Pharisee. Now I'll grant that most people as they think about this way don't have in mind the day of judgment. But it's very interesting. Certainly when I've talked to people, to some of my friends, my non-Christian friends about God's future judgment, usually their first reaction is incredulity. It, what? What? Judged? Me? What for? 
That's the kind of reaction. And if I can persuade them that, you know, it would be quite good if, if God judged wickedness and judged evil, they might say, well, yes. But it's crystal clear as they're replying, yes, that they're very clear it would have absolutely nothing to do with them. Now, we could imagine that if, if God were to judge them unfavorably, that, that would mean that there'd be something wrong with God. Something twisted about his justice. If there were that kind of outcome, I've actually had one of my friends say that to me. They, of course, are not like other people. And let's be honest, we all think about that way some of the time, at least. I guess the list might be slightly different to that in verse 11. But we too think to ourselves, you know, we're not like other people. The people we like to look down on, whoever they may be, the the benefit fraudsters, bankers, paedophiles. Worst of all, of course, the people who voted the wrong way, whatever we think that is, the wrong way in the EU referendum. The blue-collar workers who voted for Donald Trump. Thank God we're not like them, we think. And so like the Pharisee, we're confident of a good outcome if, if judgment were to come. Look at the sting in the tail here. Verse 14, the Pharisee did not go home justified before God. This is Jesus' solemn declaration. Everyone who exalts himself like that Pharisee will be humbled. They are not justified by God. They have no claim to righteousness before him. They will not be acquitted On that last day, they will be humbled. Jesus means they will be judged unrighteous, unfit, unworthy for life together with God. And we should take very close note of what he says. Because, of course, it's Jesus himself who's the one who's going to be doing the judging. Judging people like this Pharisee and us too. I think we lose the shock of what Jesus is saying here because we're, many of us anyway, are very over-familiar with this story. You know, we're already used to thinking about the Pharisees as the bad guys. So when the, the Pharisee gets a bad outcome here, we're not terribly surprised. But that's certainly not the way things would have been seen at the time. The Pharisees were the super good guys. The super good guys. So when Jesus condemns the Pharisee, in verse 14, and commends the tax collector, it appears at first glance like a terrible miscarriage of justice. It's like Scar ending up victorious at the end of The Lion King, and not Simba. It's like the the good dancers on Strictly being thrown out, and Ed Balls wins it. (laughs) It's like that person you nominated for an OBE for all their charitable work, and they go to the palace, and what happens? They're immediately locked up. It seems like a terrible miscarriage of justice. So what's going on here? Why the apparent miscarriage of justice? Why did he not go home justified? Well, no doubt part of the problem was that his righteousness was something of a sham. It was a delusion, perhaps even a self-delusion. Elsewhere in his teaching, Jesus takes the Pharisees to task for exactly that. You know, look very closely at the life of a Pharisee and it 
it seems that they weren't really very good law keepers at all. But the fault that Jesus seems to be emphasizing here is what? Well, it seems to be the Pharisees' self-confidence, his sneering at others. The way, verse 14, he is exalting himself. In other words, it's the arrogance with which he utterly ignores God's role as judge and takes that role upon himself, judging himself favorably while he condemns others. It's a bit like this. It's a bit like uh, being in an exam. And uh, let's suppose it goes like this. Let's suppose you look through the exam paper and uh, you pick out all the easy questions, uh, the ones asking for for one-line answers. Uh, And ignoring all the harder questions, uh, for each of those questions, you write up not a one-line answer, but a a one-page answer. You feel good about yourself. I'm doing way more than the examiner has asked for, you say to yourself. Now, that already is bad enough, isn't it? That's kind of what the Pharisee is doing here. That already is bad enough. It's very unlikely, in fact, that you're going to do very well in that exam, I think. But then you do something even more arrogant, even more stupid. At the end of the exam, instead of handing your paper in, you take out a red pen and you mark it yourself. You examine it yourself. And you declare to the room, well, you know, I've had a look through this, and you know, it's excellent in my view. And look, I've given myself an A star, top of the class, I think. Well, let's think that through. How will it be for us on the judgment day if we do something like that before God? So I just want to speak to you tonight, especially if you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian person. Perhaps you wouldn't even describe yourself as particularly religious. Uh, Maybe you're listening to this and thinking, well, you know, this has got nothing to do with me. Uh, Perhaps, you know, I know lots of self-righteous Christians, plenty of those around. Uh, But I'm not like that. Well, the question is, are you sure about that? You might not be so offensively self-righteous as some religious people, and it is offensive. But if there's a judgment coming, how, how exactly are you assessing your chances there? Are you perhaps like that person in the exam awarding yourself, well, maybe not an A star, but at least a pass? Are you confident that it can be right for you to judge yourself like that? And for those of us who, who would just call ourselves Christian, I, I hardly had to tell you how, how easy it is for this mindset to sort of creep back into our lives and thinking. You know, the mindset of the Pharisee. And I'm not just thinking about uh, those times in history when, when churches have, you know, on a wholesale way, have sort of abandoned grace and gone back to a kind of cold legalism. I'm thinking about the kind of more subtle ways we can drift back into being a Pharisee. For myself, I know that it can, it can happen very easily as I approach my Christian ministry. So Christian ministry and service is, is hard, it's costly, and uh, so I need to be well motivated. But instead of looking to the, the gospel motivations for ministry, which are many, I slip back into Pharisaic motivations for ministry. 
I choose ministry that feels good because it looks good. Or if that particular ministry can't be widely seen, I make sure that people hear about it. If I were to let this get unchecked, I would become extremely sort of ambitious and elitist, I think, constantly making comparisons between myself and others. I would imagine, and I know for myself that this happens sometimes, that this would express itself in a, in a short temper, in anger or in grumpiness. You know, whenever I feel I'm not getting my way or not getting the approval I want or being as respected as I think I should be. Or slipping back into to being like a Pharisee can happen as I, as I battle with sin and seek to be self-controlled. Again, self-control is a difficult thing. It's a hard thing. So I need to be well-motivated. But instead of looking to the gospel motivations, which are many, I slip into thinking about it like a Pharisee again, using that to motivate my self-control. I feel good about myself when things are going well. And then I punish myself harshly in some way when they're not. As I do that, my mood is going up and down very sharply, depending on how things are going. For example, suppose I I do do something wrong, something I've been trying very hard not to do. Well, instead of turning back to Jesus, I, I simply hate myself. I simply lapse into a state of self loathing or something like that. Well, self hatred on its own can be a very dangerous and destructive place to be, as well. We'll think about, more, think about more shortly. So what are we to do when these kinds of symptoms start showing themselves? Well, given what Jesus says here, whether it's for the first time or the 5,000th time, what are we to do? We're to put that inner Pharisee to death. And I think actually if we want a very clear biblical example of how to do that, Uh, We can't do much better than the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. You might know that in his letter to the Christians in Philippi, uh, Paul describes how he was once very much like this Pharisee. He says, I was, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless, he says. But then he realized that was not a good place to be. And I imagine he heard this story and was deeply moved by this Account from Jesus' teaching. And Jesus dragged him out of that kind of foolishness. And so Paul goes on to say about those things, about the way he once thought, well now, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ A righteousness that is from God and is by faith. Those things that that used to motivate us and uh, motivate us wrongly even now. Consider them rubbish. Consider them rubbish. So how then should we pray once we've done that? How then should we pray as we consider the coming judgment and encountering the living God, if not like the Pharisee? Well, this is our final point tonight. Be like the tax collector. Be like the tax collector. Surrendering yourself to God's mercy. Pray like the tax collector. Humbly surrendering any claim 
any excuse, acknowledging God's righteous judgment against us, but also pleading for it to be taken away. Look at verse 13 uh, with me again. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Who were these uh, tax collectors? Well, they were people who collected a sales tax in that area. It was between uh, 2 and 10%, apparently, which is uh, quite good by modern standards. It was imposed by the Romans and collected for the Romans, but uh, the tax collectors were permitted to add a, a surcharge of their own choosing on top of the tax itself, which, of course, was a practice that was widely abused. Fellow Jews considered the surcharge plain robbery, and so had the tax collectors excommunicated, thrown out of the synagogue, put alongside all the, the robbers and the evildoers and the adulterers, as we, as we see implied here. So that's the kind of person we're talking about here. That's the kind of person who's just sort of crept in and is standing at a distance. And you'll notice what's really characteristic about him. He's, there's no pretense in what he's doing. No pretense. And even in his stance, he's acknowledging that God would be right to judge him harshly on the day of judgment. His eyes are cast down. He's beating his breast. And in his words and in his prayer, he acknowledges the same. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So he's not pretending. He knows who he is. And unlike the Pharisee, he he knows that, that God is the judge. He is not the judge. God is the judge. But what does he do? He does pray. He does ask He asks for mercy. He pleads for mercy. Or even it's stronger than that. He's he's come to the temple. He's deliberately come to the temple. It's the place of sacrifice and atonement. And more precisely, what he asks for here is propitiation. What does that mean? It means he asks for God's righteous judgment to be taken away from him. And then what happens? Well, straight away, Jesus tells us, his prayer is answered. Verse 14, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. So what does this mean for us? What doesn't it mean for us? Well, I think it's fairly sure here that Jesus isn't encouraging us to to kind of Temporary humility, one where, you know, perhaps today we're moved by the example of the tax collector for a while, but then we drift back into our old Pharisaic ways, much as I was describing earlier. He's certainly not encouraging that. This is to be a permanent state of humility before God. This also doesn't mean a false humility that's just as much a sham as the Pharisee's righteousness where we say we think we're terrible but we don't really believe that and are rather offended if anyone else believes it too. This also, I think, I think 
doesn't suggest that we should be permanently in a state where we're hating or loathing ourselves. I've been reflecting on this week for myself just how important this is, and it's worth pausing about just to think about just for just a moment. I don't think this is an example of self-loathing. You know, the tax collector is acknowledging God's judgment. He's not passing judgment on himself. I think if he were passing judgment on himself, he wouldn't, in the end, be so much different from the Pharisee. Let's think about that, that example from the exam I mentioned earlier. Let's suppose it ended slightly different, differently. And at the end of the exam, in a fit of despair, you get your red pen out and you award yourself a fail, which might be an accurate reflection of what's going on in the exam, but it, and it would perhaps be better than awarding yourself an A star, but nonetheless, it would still be an odd and inappropriate thing for you to do. You are not the examiner. It's simply not your job to do that. So remember again, we are not the judge. God is the judge. I think this is very important for those of us with a a tendency to a little melancholy, to be a little melancholy. We need to hear this again and again. When our humility before God slips into self-loathing as it, as it sometimes may do it can be a very very dangerous thing for us it can make us self-destructive destructive to those around us it means when the, when the wonderful news the gospel news of our justification comes from Jesus there, there will be times if we're too much immersed in that self-loathing that we won't hear it or believe it or accept it and that will leave us in a very bad place So yes, the tax collector has, in a sense, examined himself in in the sense that he's seen that he's a sinner. Yes, his eyes are cast down. Yes, he is beating his breast as he acknowledges his sin. But he's not doing this all on his own. There's a sort of act of isolated self-hatred without much reference to God or appeal to God. Where is he? He's in the temple. He's doing it quite publicly openly before God and desperately pleading with God, praying. Because God is the judge. And I think if he were to have heard Jesus' verdict here, Jesus' good news, that he went home justified before God, it would have changed everything for him, transformed him. We need to remember, I need to remember, that the first disciples we read about in the New Testament, they, as they went out into the world with, with the gospel message, they did not go out with self-hatred or self-loathing. They were not incapacitated by those things or, or crippled by their guilt. Not at all, it's true. They all humbled themselves before God constantly, like this tax collector. But when they heard the good news of justification for themselves, they believed it. They accepted it. They got up. They dusted themselves off and then joyfully went off to serve their new master. And this, in the end, is what this parable is all about. Justification, being declared right with God, having that declaration of of acquittal on the last day declared to us now. It's a free joyful, wonderful gift of God for those who humbly entrust themselves to him.
Now, Jesus doesn't explain everything here about that. He doesn't explain how, how it was that God was justly able to justify this ungodly tax collector. Where's the justice in that, we might think? That does come a little later in the Bible story. We see that Jesus himself took on the atoning work of the temple. The Apostle Paul came to understand this very fully, very deeply. We read about in the letter to the Romans that that God put forth Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. Jesus as the one who would turn aside the wrath and judgment of God so that God might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. But in some ways in Luke 18, we don't really need to know all those details yet. We just need to be amazed. Amazed at the extraordinary, surprising outcome of this parable. Uh, The shocking and yet wonderful ending for the ungodly man who surrendered himself to God and his mercy. So I do hope we've seen tonight that the idea of a kind of self-assessment or self-judgment or self-sentencing when it comes to the day of God's judgment, it really is just as silly as trying to do those things in our own justice system. Just as ridiculous. There's something profoundly arrogant and stupid about me taking on the role of judge when I'm clearly not the judge. It's certainly not going to work out well when I face the real judge if I try that on. So self-checkout in supermarkets, great, if they can get them to work. Self-assessment in our tax affairs, fine, seems to work most of the time. Self-judgment on the last day, it should be obvious, no, no. But openness before God? Yes. Acknowledging God as judge? Yes. Being continuously humble before him? Yes. Appealing to his mercy in Jesus Christ who died and was raised that those of faith might be justified? Yes. This is Jesus' verdict. Verse 14 again. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, let us pray. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Heavenly Father, many things we could be encouraged to pray on the basis of this wonderful parable. But we pray that this would be the foundation and basis of all our prayers before you, appealing to your mercy. Appealing to your mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ who was given over as a propitiation for our sins by his blood. So that our cry in every prayer we make is, O God, have mercy on us as sinners.
Amen. Well, we're going to be uh, sung to now, uh, a wonderful song which picks up on this very prayer. You'll see at the end of the first verse we're going to hear, Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you.